All right, here we go. So it is, uh, welcome to another episode of Campfire Conversations. I always struggle with how to uh, intro these things. Every single time, Sam, I try to, I want to do something different or something the same. I don't know if it's consistency of doing it wrong every time makes it good or what, but um, we're back again. Yeah, I it's, just like saying we're back. We're back. You like saying we're back, but it's, <laughs> when you always intro with we're back, it's, I don't think it's the same effect. Um, but it's September. It's almost the end of September, almost October. Mm-hmm. My very favorite time of year for lots of reasons. Leaves are turning, starting to turn. Um, I've been noticing the black gums around my house are definitely turning. They're actually dropping leaves. Yeah. Um, sweet gums are starting to turn. Won't be long. The maples will be turning. So temperatures are still negotiable on comfortable level. Yeah, well, it's actually going to drop into highs of the 70 this week. And lows in the 40s. What's our long-term forecast there at it's, the weather desk? Yeah, <laughs> over here at the weather desk, the lows will be in the low 40s. The highs will not even crack into the 80s. How about that? So for you archery hunters, yeah. um, if you're jonesing to get out there, sounds like they're right. The, mm-hmm. the swing is coming. Mosquitoes have been bad. Um, maybe the cool weather will help. And the reptiles have continued to move. Over the last week, man, how many? <laughs> you saw a big old copperhead. Yep, did see a nice copperhead um, down the low water bridge. Last week, I was monitoring and saw um, three snakes, three black snakes. You made a statement. What well, your statement was? It was the snakiest day of the. It was a sna- no. Are you talking about my your sta- tur- your turtle statement? Was yeah, the I said thing. I'm in the one percent of turtle finders this this uh, year. Probably we, we have a guest, um, which we haven't <laughs> we haven't introduced yet, but keep. <laughs> Lauren, when we introduce you, keep in mind that Sam thinks he's in the 1% of turtle finders. Um, we're, we'll talk I am in the 1% we'll, we'll talk of about finders. that. Um, I will keep that in mind. Um, so, yeah, he made that statement. I said that was absolute horse horse hockey. But I'll just say I'll just say that I haven't I can't go into the woods without finding a box turtle. I'm on I don't know what it is. He's talking about a getting a street. tattoo. A I've box seen, turtle tattoo. I've seen two sets of mating box turtles this year. Um, which is impressive. I'll give you that. Yeah. Which is, I have photo documentation of that. Um, so yeah, it's been a good, it's been a good fall for me for sure. Well, let's transition to bad things right quick. Hang with us, Lauren. Then we'll introduce you. We got one more thing. Yeah. I just got to get this off my chest. No, of course. Go for it. Go for it. And half our listeners will care. The other half will care. Not at all. Mm, But so for those of you that enjoy talking about fishing, and hearing the fishing adventures of guests and myself and Sam and things we talk about entered a big time tournament this past weekend and it was the biggest probably one of the biggest tournaments ever held on the Yadkin Chain of Lakes for catfish um huge turnout 50 either 53 or 57 boats in this tournament and uh anglers from all over all over the state all over the country I mean there are people from everywhere and uh everything from super super nice pro pro boats to uh you know john boy and billy kind of thing i mean everybody was there and uh i had high hopes it was a lake that i do not fish ever really um it's high rock yeah it's high rock it's on high rock i don't fish it um mainly because of the crowds but um thought i had a you know just as good a shot as anybody you know that statement where folks make losers make well somebody's got to win it right well it wasn't me i can tell you that did not weigh in a fish i mean did not started at 5 30 p.m launch blast off was at seven 
at 7 till 5.30 in the morning. William was at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. Yeah. So you're out there for 12 hours. On the boat. I was on the boat for more than 12 hours because the boat was launched pre-blast off. Yeah. So, and before that, I was catching bait. So I was on the boat for probably 14, 15 hours. And no fish. Not one fish to weigh in. Mm. Caught a gar, which is no... Yeah. Uh, it's like a subtraction. It's might like as well, I'd rather stab that thing through my eye <laughs> than talk about it. Um, but the winning team, I mean, kudos to them. Be a good sport about it. They had a phenomenal weight for any fish were not biting. I mean, straight up fish were not biting. Mm-hmm. It was a full moon, just dead night, nothing happening. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a, a team, moon. the team that weighed in, the top team they weighed in over, they weighed in 113 pounds in three fish, mm. which is a great weight in any tournament, any conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's phenomenal. So, congratulations to them and the top five teams weighing in with the weights they weighed in and after the top five teams the weights really 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 dropped off Mm -hmm. and uh, there were over 20 there were 22 or 23 teams that did not weigh in including my team Mm -hmm. so that said we'll look forward to the next tournament in the trail yeah maybe we'll have some better news and hopefully have some better news (laughs) i mean i plan on at least weighing in a fish (laughs) so get that off my chest so now uh, yeah now that we've talked about fish it's time to talk about birds Talk about my other favorite thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, oh yeah. So, sure. Lauren, we're going to introduce Lauren Farr. Am I saying it right, Farr? You are. Okay. Yes, yes, that's perfect. Okay, excellent. So, Lauren is a we we disclosed to her earlier that we were doing some sleuthing on the internet about her, and we'll talk about how you can find her later. But Lauren is is currently enrolled at NC State. She is a PhD candidate, and she is doing some super interesting work with uh, RCWs, the Red Cockaded Woodpecker, which we're going to get in-depth on. But she's done a lot of other cool stuff, too. And, uh, Lauren, this is your opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience and, and really to me and Sam. And then and don't don't treat it like a job interview. Just like <laughs> like like we're meeting like we're treat it like we're all meeting at uh, Waffle House or something <laughs> like that. And then we'll uh, we'll get into some questions. All right. Well, I will. I will try to go for it here and treat it like we're meeting at the Waffle House for sure. Perfect. <laughs> um, so yes. Yeah, so yeah. My 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 name is Lauren Farr. I am a first year PhD student at North Carolina State University, uh, pursuing my degree in fisheries, wildlife, and conservation biology. I recently it it seems like a long time ago, but it's actually a little bit recent. I recently graduated with my uh, master's degree. From NC State in the in the same field um, in May of 2021. Um, so um, I just continued on, you know, from there doing doing uh, my PhD work. And so I shifted from so for my master's degree, I was looking at um, urban noise and light pollution and its effects on avian survivorship. And so I shifted uh, my research focus to uh, red cockaded woodpeckers and looking at climate change and their impacts on nestling success. So aside from my research, I do a ton more <laughs> of other things. Gosh, it's like, what am I not doing these days? <laughs> um, but so um, aside from my research, I am heavily involved in science communication. So specifically, I am a intern and associate editor for North Carolina Sea Grant award-winning magazine, Coastal. I've been with them for almost a year now, so they've been nothing but fabulous to me, and I've absolutely loved my position with them. And um, I am also um, an editorial advisory board member on the Wildlife Society's 
um, magazine for, for their magazine, The Wildlife Professional. So I've been with them now for a couple of months. So I started a little bit back at the beginning um, of the summer, of this summer. So I've been with them now for a couple of months, and they have been nothing but fabulous as well. So um, aside from science communication, I also am heavily involved in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, initiatives here at NC State. I serve as a graduate student, um, sort of like a representative, graduate student representative um, on our department's uh, at, um, DEI initiative board, <laughs> diversity, equity, and inclusion board here. I've been with them now for almost um, a year, going on a year so. That has been exciting as well to sort of, you know, see some change in our department when it comes to, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So aside from all of my professional stuff, um, I am a birder. I do love to bird watch. I'm an ornithologist, specifically an avian ecologist. So I love looking at, you know, birds and their habitats, and especially when it comes um, to climate change, which is, you know, a heavy topic now. And it, it, it is happening. It's real. And so, you know, we just need to keep learning what we can about it and how it's affecting not only our communities, but other animal, you know, communities as well. So, um, yeah, but that's just, that's a little bit about me. Um, I hope that was a good walk. That, that was a great, that was a great resume there. Um, <laughs> That might have been a little bit much for Walmart. Yeah, that might have been job. Yeah, that, was, that was might have that been was, job. That interview. was closer to job. Like I'd hire you. You're you're hired. <laughs> you, you, you're hired. Um, but excellent. Yeah. So love it. <laughs> um, you touched on a lot of things. A lot of things that you're doing that we're gonna we're gonna get into. Um, yes. First, I want to sure. I want to talk to you a little bit about. I read, and I don't even remember which which place I found it. Um, but I was reading a little bit about your background and and growing up and kind of how you got interested in the outdoors and and you'd made a comment that your dad was a big hunter um yes. talk about talk about your dad a little bit and uh yeah. how, th how that got you into the uh the the place you are now of course of course so yeah so so my dad yes he, he is you know he is a big hunter he took he he took me out you know when i was really really young with him you know go out hunting with him and explore the outdoors and be out there with him it was you know just just fabulous and I really, you know, that got me into, you know, loving, loving nature and loving the outdoors and, you know, of course, having good, you know, fun times and memories with my dad. And also, I do also have to, you know, credit my uncle also because he was like your, you know, average backyard birder. He was, he was very into, you know, the birds in his backyard. He would, you know, be feeding them and watching them and he would call me and tell me you know all the birds that he was seeing and you know me being really young I I really really enjoyed this I really did but if you asked me like if you were to ask me right now Lauren did you think that you would be in the position that you're in today studying birds I would have told you 100% no I would have never so <laughs> now I really have to give credit to my uncle for you know the whole the whole bird thing and me becoming you know interested in birds um so when i was younger i wanted to become a veterinarian um because i was you know very interested in animals i was an animal lover and back then you know when i was growing up and it probably still is you know around today it's, it's probably one of the only professions that are really like heavily introduced to us younger kids when you know oh well you like animals mm -hmm. then you know of course right. like let's you know, become a veterinarian. Like that was the only, you know, really thing that was really put out there, you know, in front of me. And, you know, although I've watched these like, you know, nature documentaries 
and um, you know, and everything on TV. I never really pictured myself being out there and doing that kind of work. So although it was animal and it was wildlife at that, so I never really pictured myself even doing work with wildlife back then. So I ran with the idea of becoming a veterinarian up until um, college. So in undergrad, I went to Wingate University. Um, and from there, I majored in biology. And with that major, I, I just, I still didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, you know, okay, well, biology, like, you know, it's, it's kind of broad. So, you know, I'll find something eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll mm-hmm. find something eventually with this. And so I started working with one of my undergrad mentors. So she is, this is a tongue twister, a reproductive physiologist mm-hmm. <laughs> who um, studies sheep. So her focal species is sheep out in Idaho. Um, so she took me out there with her and we were doing some lab work and messing with these sheep and looking at everything in Idaho. And this got me really interested in research. Now, was it what I really, was it really something I could see myself doing in the future? Not so much, but it did get me interested and sparked my interest in research. So from there, she told me to go and talk to, you know, other professors in my department, in the, in the biology department, and, you know, just see what they were doing. So, you know, people from herpetology to microbiology, et cetera. So I went out on a limb, and I went and spoke to my ornithology professor. And this was when I knew after doing some research. So I did some research with Chinese blue-breasted quail. They are the world's smallest quail. They're also known as king quail. They're known by many names, but um, Chinese blue-breasted quail was was what I usually called them, and so after doing research with them, I looked at sort of their, um, like, vocal patterns and how they changed over time from when they're, you know, really young to when they got older, so when they were sexually mature, Mm -hmm. and from there, that was when that spark really, you know, became evident that I like what I'm doing, like, this is, I can see myself you know, researching birds for the rest of my life. And so from there, I switched my major from biology to environmental biology. And with that major, I was able to take other courses such as wildlife biology, um, animal ecology and evolution, courses like that. So once I took wildlife management, that was what really got me interested in wildlife biology. And so from there, I wanted to further my education and, um, you know, learn more about this wildlife biology and fisheries and wildlife Mm. and what it all entailed while still researching birds. So I came to NC State once I graduated from Wingate in 2019, came to NC State, got my master's, graduated from there (laughs) with my master's in 2021. And from there, I'm still here at State doing my PhD work with RCWs. So that is my timeline <laughs> that's 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 amazing i uh i think i think a lot of wildlife people uh have very similar stories in that we all probably wanted to be either a game warden or a veterinarian those were the <laughs> those were the two <laughs> options presented to you as a as a youth um you know between the ages of nine and 15 that's yes, that's what you sure. were that's what you knew or what you were told and exactly. uh when you go to college you know hopefully you stick with your passion and, and choose, you know, the field of biology correctly. Yeah. And then you yeah. find out, whoa, there's, there's a million positions. There there's are, a million positions. There's exactly. all these things. And, uh, exactly. so yeah, I can relate to that. And I think a lot of our, our, our colleagues and peers and, and listeners can relate to that as well. Um, 
and then finding that that niche. Do you think that um, you'll stick with research even after your PhD? Do you think you'll want to continue as a researcher? I loved re- when yeah. I was doing research. I loved it. Um, it's 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 a weird thing to make a living at, but it, it, is. it really is. It really is. So definitely. So I'm I'm definitely keeping my options open. Um, I, I would really though like to, you know, gain like a permanent position with, you know, a state or federal agency. So, um, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife or North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I know a ton of contacts through both of those. And so, you know, I would probably at the end of this, you know, want to be some sort of research, um, you know, wildlife biologist with, with either of those. Um, but also, you know, academia, that's another, you know, avenue that one could take and, you know, teach a little bit, but also maybe have, you know, like a research lab. Mm-hmm. Um, there's these positions up here at state. So they're um, kind of like some, some co- cooperative uh, positions, um, sort of like an um, extension almost a little bit. But so you sort of work with, you know, a, a state agency at the same time that you're kind of still working with the university. So I consider this as well because I absolutely have been you know loving my time at NC State I I love you know the faculty here and the people that I've been working with so that's also an option as well so I'm I'm definitely keeping my options open (laughs) I think think that's smart we uh we've had you know we we know a ton of people the wildlife field as you've seen and like you just mentioned you've got a ton of contacts there it's super small um so you wind up kind of everybody knows everybody at some point Mm -hmm. and we You know, I, I've out of all the people that I'm I'm friends with, not a ton of them were able to stay in the research realm. Mm-hmm. Um, but one that Sam knows and, and I know very well, um, Doctor Beaver, Doctor Jared Beaver, who's been on the show. You know, he's uh, just like you said, he's now an extension professor. I'm oh, sorry, yeah. there's my phone, yeah, squeaking. Um, but um, you know, and he he was able to he he loved research. He was able to stick with research and and make a living yeah. at it and. One yes. cool thing about research and and especially extension is those are, that's one of the few applications where you can actually make a big difference um, right. through findings or outreach. Um, you know, some of the biology positions and biologist positions you're just kind of doing through the day to day stuff, and you're making a difference, mm-hmm. but you don't really mm-hmm. see it in your lifetime. Versus right. research, I agree. sometimes you may you may be able to make a difference you know, in the here and now, which is cool. And I think that's kind of what you're working on through your current, your current work with your PhD yeah. studies, which is what, what we're here, mostly here to talk about, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, so I want to hop in and um, talk a little bit about what the land trust is and what we do and then how it kind of ties into your work. And then we'll start asking sure. some RCW questions. So uh, Three Rivers Land Trust, we're a land conservation organization uh, and we cover 15 counties. Uh, Prior to 2018 or 2019, 20, when we merged with SALT, um, we covered 10 counties. But after that merger, we ended up picking up five counties in the sand hills of North Carolina, So, uh, which is obviously very applicable to your RCW work. That's Longleaf oh, Pine, yeah. Longleaf Pine country and uh, around Fort Bragg, that whole area. Um, so we're doing a lot of land conservation work on conserving private lands and uh, trying to transfer land to public agencies um, to really protect natural habitat and waterways all along our region. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the Sandhills area, 
RCWs and longleaf pines are like the that's the tip of the spear of conservation. I mean, it's a it's a huge deal. Um, and we've got a list of, of questions that I kind of wanted to reach out to you. But I guess the first one was, you know, what are the threats? What are the threats, in your opinion, to RCWs? And then uh, how does conservation and protecting habitat kind of fit into that, into those threats? Or where does it where does it rank as a threat to RCWs? Yeah, um, well, for sure. So first and foremost, I think, you know, just, you know, me and what I've seen so far with, with my research that a lot of people, you know, don't really think about is this threat of climate change, which is what, you know, I'm looking at. So it's, you know, one of the, the bigger threats. And, you know, climate change, there's a ton of things that can fall, you know, under climate change from, you know, precipitation and rising temperatures, et cetera. So, um, you know, some papers that I've read, you know, they, they've looked at, you know, these, these, um, you know, natural events such as hurricanes or heavy rainfall, those all affect, you know, not just RCWs, but, you know, a ton of, of bird species. And so, you know, with that, um, it sort of ties into my research as sort of, you know, looking at what could potentially, you know, be driving, you know, this, this like nestling, you know, success. So I'll, I'll kind of, you know, push it, push it back a little bit, but, so my research question started out as, you know, um, our, the, so our, the, the main biologist that, you know, looks at RCWs, his name is Jeffrey Walters. He's at Virginia Tech. Um, he's one of like the pioneers of RCW research. He had, you know, reached out to myself and my advisors and had said, you know, that he thinks that there's a little bit of nestling success, you know, problems going on, um, not only in the Sandhills, but at um, Camp Lejeune and um, Eglin. Uh, so, you know, looking at that, I'm still doing, you know, some preliminary data and, and looking at some trends, but uh, we're starting to see a little bit here. And so with that, we sort of started to, or we're starting to draft some questions as to, you know, why this could be. So again, going back to the threat of climate change, we're looking maybe at rising temperatures. So could this be sort of like, you know, um, pertaining to like the cavities that the RCWs are using? Um, could it be insect abundance? So with climate change, one thing that people don't really think about is that, you know, climate and everything and the change of the seasons drives, you know, insect abundance and, you know, when insects appear. And if insects are appearing, you know, later or earlier, this can impact, you know, bird species, particularly RCWs, who um, rely on a lot of wood roaches, for sure, but as well as moths and other things. So, you know, that could be a factor. Or it could also be a factor of um, density. So these RCWs, especially in the Sandhills, um, their populations have grown, which is amazing. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they're, you know, clusters. So RCWs live in family groups. They're cooperative breeders. And they live in these things called clusters where they have a set of cavity trees that are, you know, um, apparent to that, you know, one particular family group. These clusters are really, you know, getting closer and closer together. And so this is, allowing for more, you know, fighting and territory defenses and everything by RCWs. So could this be causing stress? So those are some of the questions that I'm working off of when it comes to my research. So climate change is, in fact, um, one uh, threat. Another threat is, um, you know, predators. So, for example, um, RCWs, so they're cool fact about them. They're the only woodpeckers known to, you know, excavate living pine trees for their cavities. 
So with that, um, Longleaf Pine is, you know, one of their favorites, but Loblolly and some more pine trees are also, you know, a favorite to them as well, but Longleaf is a very particular one. Um, but with that, you know, these, these trees, when they excavate these cavities, you know, these, these trees produce sap. And so as the sap falls down the tree, it can um, sort of ward off, you know, predators such as black rat snakes from getting to the nest. So um, that's, you know, a, that's one threat as well. There's also other threats such as, you know, uh, um, different kinds of birds and different kinds of, you know, uh, other animals who use RCW cavities for their homes. So that's a potential threat, you know, to RCWs. Um, but another threat which I'm still starting to learn about, and it's, it's sort of, you know, um, it sort of kind of struck me at the beginning because this is the first time that I've ever done any sort of work where I have to be, you know, involved with, you know, private, you know, maybe landowners maybe and their attitudes. So believe it or not, there are some people who don't really favor RCWs. And this is sort of going back to, you know, the private lands, you know, like you were discussing before. There's, you know, tons of people who, you know, maybe not favor RCWs and all of these, you know, um, these acts that are, you know, being taken upon to save these species. So you have to get people involved. <laughs> so uh, that's right. people yeah. are a threat. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, and I think, you know, from our perspective, uh, yeah people are, are, are one of the larger threats due to the fact yes. that they do require, it's like you said, they're one of the only species that excavate their own cavity. So they require a mature tree, mm -hmm. uh, a tree mm -hmm. big enough to be able to withstand that, that type of hole. I mean, it's gotta be a hole right. big enough for them to fit their head through and then right. go in there and raise a brood. So the fact that people have removed 99% of their habitat from the landscape yes. is, is a, uh, I mean, I'm not, yeah, not, not necessarily like a malicious, like, I'm not on purpose. I'm going to stick it to no. them. Yeah. But, yeah. Right, nobody went out right, and said, right. I'm getting rid of RCWs. Yeah, uh -huh. It was just through expansion, urbanization, uh, you know, urban sprawl, suburban sprawl. Yes. And the fact yes. that, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, made a huge industry out of out of pine trees um and the longleaf right. pine specifically you know at the turn of the century that's why we're the Tar Heel state is because of right. the longleaf pine and so we used a lot right. of that resource and at one time uh humans did not realize the the sustainability factor of of how long it takes to grow those mature trees mm -hmm. um yes. we went through a you know if you look at it it's a bell-shaped curve of we created really really good habitat by having open canopy for rcws for a while and then it got to the point where there was no canopy because we took away all those trees and so the mm -hmm. population went up then it went way 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 down to almost nothing and um i guess i want to give two and jump in lauren and correct me if i if i say anything wrong oh, but okay. for our listener that may not be the uh, rcw aficionado um, a couple things you should know as we talk about it are one will you'll hear us mention a couple of places you heard her mention camp lejeune um, Fort Bragg and the Sand Hills Game Land. What you may not know about those places is Fort Bragg and Camp Lejeune are not just military installations. They are vast expanses of undeveloped landscape that is very well managed and managed specifically for, in many cases, the RCW because of its endangered species status, that being a, a federal installation. They are very much concerned with making sure that they provide habitat for those animals. So they've got managers that they're their full-time job with DOD is working to manage for RCWs. Um, Sandhills Game Land, 
you know, it's a natural area owned by the state um, for the purpose of hunting and fishing. But, you know, one of the things about game lands is it's managed for wildlife. And so they do a ton. And being a former member of Wildlife Resources Commission myself, um, spent some time with, uh, you know, the Sand Hills Game Land doing RCW work there as well, which, you know, we're going to talk about your work there. But um, that's a couple of things you should know about about RCWs uh, and the uh, properties we're talking about. It's not like they're they're living at the barracks at at yeah. at the base. There's a lot of undeveloped landscape to talk about there. Um, but habitat, from our perspective at the land trust, and what what Sam was was meaning from 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 the land trust perspective and what we can do is protect those areas and we, and we, we do a ton of it um, protecting longleaf pine that's um, one of our one of our missions in that area and it scores higher on our protection checklist mm-hmm. if it has certain things and, and you you just spend a lot of time working with those i mean an example would be the property where we just burned that we we now own you know um, in the sand hills it's a longleaf restoration site mm-hmm. um, so we, we do everything from putting those trees back on the landscape to protecting exist, existing ones. Excuse yeah. Me. Yeah. So talk a little bit about Lauren, um, just kind of, you're new to this. This is a new area of study for you. Um, yeah. but from somebody who's just begun and is kind of getting into all of it, talk about that relationship between the RCW and the longleaf pine and why, why that tree, that specific tree is important to this, to this endangered species. Oh, of course, of course. So, yeah, so the longleaf pine, again, um, you know, the RCW is a protector that can excavate in, you know, a live, a live pine. Um, so, you know, the, the longleaf itself, I mean, it's, it's a fabulous, a fabulous, fabulous tree. Um, but the one thing, too, that, you know, is, is really good about the longleaf is that um, it sort of, you know, the, it, it, it provides, you know, the, the RCW with a ton of resources when it comes to habitat, to homes, um, insects, for example, you know, um, the RCW loves to, you know, get, you know, insects off the longleaf pine also. So, um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the longleaf pine as a habitat um, is, is just, is just great. Um, and they, you know, and these trees, they are around you know tons and tons of years so although it takes you know a while for the rcw to excavate their cavity in these trees um it you know this these trees are around for a long time which is why these rcws can keep these trees you know in their in their family groups um which is which is pretty pretty awesome yeah <laughs> when i, I was you I know agree pretty pretty awesome i, so, think, I know, think it's funny the and i'm sure at this point you've noticed going down there and, and and banding woodpeckers and and checking yeah. these these cavities they tend to choose flashy trees i would i would call it a flashier tree like <laughs> it, have you noticed that you, and i'm sure you know what i'm talking about like they'll pick a when they pick a tree to excavate they kind of pick a, a tree that's different than all the rest it's either bigger yes. or it's got a flat top and it's like gnarly looking yeah um, they like those they like a flashy house site they really do. I mean, you know what? You bring up a good point because I, gosh, I climbed a tree. Well, sorry, I didn't climb it. My te- my technician climbed it because I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> but you are right about that. They, yeah, they do pick trees that are very, yeah, they're they're very. 
very eye-opening for sure. There's there's leaning trees. There was one tree that was so tall it was probably about fifty-five feet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the and these trees do you know they 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 do get larger. Like, but the the largest that I had in my group was about fifty-five feet, and and I of course I I didn't climb that one either yet because that was that was my first you know time out there, so I was learning everything. So you know, all my technicians were like, oh, we're we're, we're not going to make you climb that tree. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, hey, I think year. this is a great time to talk about those RCW ladders. How do you feel about that? I was talking to Sam oh, about that God. pre the pre our conversation right now i was talking to sam about the rcw ladders uh those swedish the they call them swedish ladders you can google it yes. and look them up uh yes. how you feel about that <laughs> well you know what i will say so before i went um out there you know to start my first field season i i did go down to the game lab because it's about you know an hour and right. a half away from raleigh so not too too far I went down there and I worked with some of the um, the biologists at the Sand Hills Ecological Institute, and um, also um, biologists with North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission. You 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 might know him, Brady Beck. Oh, I know him well. He's, Brady's yeah, Brady Brady's a friend. Everybody knows Brady. Yeah, Brady's a friend. <laughs> Brady is amazing. Yeah, so he so he along with some of the technicians at the Sand Hills Ecological Institute. Um, you know, bought me down there before, you know, I started out, they were like, well, just come down for a few days and, you know, maybe get used to, you know, wearing the belts and climbing in the ladder. So yes, the first time I climbed, I wasn't scared, but it was just, it was a, it was a, it was a different feeling. It was like, you know, being on top of the world because mm-hmm. when you, you know, when you stack those ladders and when you're climbing, if you, if you dare to, you know, look down, right. if you dare to look down. You can just see, the, like, you know, the, the landscape that you're working with and all of the trees, and it's just gorgeous. I mean, the view is just gorgeous. So, yeah. So That's for, a good I mean, point. Those, That's yeah. a good point. I so guess those, I never thought I guess I never thought of it from being you're, – you're exactly right because it's super <laughs> open. It's an open canopy. Very, Behind Savannah habitat. It's very Savannah-ish, and so you can see a really long ways when you're – I never thought of the – every time I ever climbed one of those ladders, I just thought – only thing I thought about was not falling and making sure that I did exactly what I was supposed to and didn't piss Brady yes. or anybody off. <laughs> yes, that, that was me. <laughs> that was me too. And they, and you know, and Brady was like, "Well, this this equipment hasn't failed us yet, so you should be good." <laughs> yeah, and it's old too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's so funny. yeah, but I mean, and just maneuvering those ladders. So and and you have to think about too. So since I was training, I, I always had somebody you know with me during my first field season. But you know the the biologists that you know go out there and work out there, they're they're most likely they're by themselves. Right. So if you're you know sitting there and you have to climb you know a, a three or four ladder tree, I mean you have to maneuver you know those ladders and you know stack those ladders you know basically by yourself so if you get one ladder up there you know you, you might you know so there's a technique where you have to like you know carry the ladder between the rungs you know put your arm between the rungs mm-hmm. and basically work your way up the tree while you have these ladders on your shoulders yeah and yeah. my gosh <laughs> yeah to, to to paint the to paint the picture to the listener it's a section of ladder i can't are they 12 or 15 foot sections i can't remember yeah they're yeah, twelve foot mm-hmm. sections. So yeah. you have a section. A, a cavity is probably thirty feet high. Yeah. Before you even finish this, let's talk about what's even happening here. Like you are <laughs> with these RCW ladders, you're going to do cavity checks, right? Right. Which is to cavity look check. into the cavity of a longleaf pine that is a known site 
how home site for an RCW? Is yeah. there a better term for it? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yes. yeah, so you're going to these <laughs> marked, mm-hmm. yeah, you're going to these marked nest trees that are, I mean, in RCW country, you, you see them all over the place. They're painted. Yeah. Is well, right. yeah, I don't know. Laura, are we going to screw up by making this common knowledge of how uh, to, how to no, identify yeah. no, no. like no, to the general, no, to the general they're, population? So they're still painted. So they're still painted with the, with the, with the white stripes. So you're, so you're, so you're right about that. And the, and the nest tree. So they've identified, you know, like the nest tree that the RCW is most likely going to use. Once you've done a few nest checks and see, you know, that if there's eggs present, then you know that that's indeed the nest tree. So that's the tree that you're going to be focusing on mm-hmm. for the season. So, yeah, so, so you guys are right. Yeah. You're so when, when you drive, okay. So when you drive, when you're driving through the sand hills and you're driving, yeah. you're cutting through Fort Bragg to go to the beach or whatever. Um, <laughs> if you look off the side of the road, you will see these big long leaf pines and, and clusters that most of the time. Yeah. Sure. That have yeah. dual white stripes painted on them. Yeah. And you'll think, well, that's weird. Why did somebody go out and paint? a dozen trees in the middle of the woods. Well, if you look closer, you'll probably notice that they look like a, they look like a candle that's been burning for a really long time. And the wax is melted down over the stem because that's the sap dripping down. And if you follow that sap up, there's a hole drilled in that tree. And that's, that's the nest site. And a lot of times they are very high up. So, Back, oh, to what yeah. you, back to what you were saying about, sorry, I just wanted to give that context. Yeah. So you, well, it's important that we tell. Yeah. People, Go back to the ladder. If you're not in the sand hills, you don't, you don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, okay. So now you've, you've got the picture painted in your, in your mind. Yes. Well, then you see yes. Lauren. She's toted all these ladders. The road does not go by the tree. So she's already carried the ladders ever how far to get to the tree. And then she gets there. She's got her first section up. The hole's 35 feet up, whatever. Mm-hmm. She has to carry. She puts her first ladder on the tree then she has to carry the second section up snap it together to the top section without falling off without dropping the ladder without dropping her stuff and while maintaining a harness put that section on climb up that section as she's strapping it to the tree and then strap on the next section so for deer hunters that climb into deer stands and do sketchy things the rcw biologist would be the ultimate predator because you can (laughs) climb anything what's the I, I think I know the answer to this, but y'all have done this and I haven't. Yeah. Would the negative... Would you would the ne- like this. Yeah, I know. But would the <laughs> negative of using... Like, why not use a climber? Would that mess damage with the, the tree? Sap, damage the tree. Mm-hmm. And the sap damage dry, the tree, uh-huh. yep. Because, I mean, shimmying up with a climber... Would uh, be safer. Yeah, yes. would be safer and quick. But I get that you're, right. you're messing with the sap. Old, the old, old RCW checkers. Like, they're all retired now. But at one time they did use gaffs and tree yeah. spikes like uh-huh. like linemen do. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they discontinued that for the Swedish ladder because of the tree damage. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, because the and thing, you're checking them t- year after year, I guess. Yeah, and Lauren, like you said, I mean, they'll u- generations will reuse these mm-hmm. trees. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So it's uh, like you want to maintain them, and these trees get super super old because longleaf's yeah. a really slow growing tree, which is part of the habitat yeah. problem. Um, you mentioned another thing talking about how open it was, Lauren. So when we talk about longleaf, um, it's, it's the whole community. Like you said, it's the wiregrass longleaf community and that, you know, you can have a pine plantation that's still not advantageous to a RCW because of the way that, so I think we should dispel a myth of what woodpeckers eat, especially RCWs. Um, they, uh. They're not just drilling into the tree and eating sap. I mean, there's even a couple of woodpeckers that are called sap suckers. But 
that doesn't mean that that's what they that's not their diet. Um, and RCWs are foragers. They go out and forage around the clusters, um, flying through the air and catching grasshoppers. Basically, all kinds of insects. But just imagine grasshoppers because everybody's familiar with a grasshopper. Um, and I've and you know that's something you see them toting a lot if you spend any time looking at RCWs. Um, Katie dids and that kind of thing, but they need this open savanna landscape where Mm -hmm. the canopy is not closed because it provides habitat for those insects for one, but for two provides this really advantageous, like I can see insects from a long ways out and I can swoop down and navigate through because they're not the, I wouldn't call them the most, you're a, you're a bird, bird person and an ornithologist. I would not call them agile flyers. Would you? Like I don't feel no, like they're. No, I would not. Yeah. Mm-mm. So not at all. Exactly. So that and that's a, a that's a, at a disadvantage to them because they require this yeah. more open habitat versus you've seen, like a bat or something that can just wing it through or a woodcock for example they can wing it through yeah. the thickest of habitat no problem. Um, for sure. Right. RCWs aren't right. that. Right. Um, right. So and then yeah. you know getting back to like when you're talking about that open habitat you know they thrive in you know you know those open canopies and everything which is again why we love prescribed fire <laughs> great oh i'm so glad you said prescribed that fire is good. Mm-hmm. that's so that's a great topic and something we love talking about here um yeah. i'm not saying we're, we're fire bugs but we we spend a lot of time burning um through our our work and our habitat practices and and even at the sand hills, we've, we've burned a lot in the sand hills, and, and I did even before I, I worked here. Um, and it's something that the uh, the red cockaded woodpecker they evolved in this habitat with open canopy, longleaf pine, wire grass, and fire. And that mm-hmm. that whole ecosystem cannot be maintained without fire. And so, one of the other drivers, one of the other drivers, like we were talking about earlier, Lauren, um, and why they're on the endangered species list was fire suppression. You know, mm-hmm. there was a time period where yes. even in North Carolina, in the Sand Hills, folks thought that maybe fire was the wrong thing to do and it was dangerous and scary and we stopped doing it. We suppressed right. it and so we lost habitat. Right. Sam Sam's foaming at the bit to Yeah, to I jump got an, in. I got another question for you. Um, <laughs> regarding kind of all this and what we've been talking about, talking about using the ladders, doing cavity checks. Yeah. This is a this is an endangered species. You know, 100%. what is 100%. what is the process like getting a endangered species permit and being able to work on these on these animals? I mean, I'm sure that's yes, a, for, not an easy process. Good, yeah, that is a good question. That's a good question. So, yeah, definitely. So when I uh, when I started, you know, getting ready to work with these species, um, I had to, you know, talk with the biologist at the Sand Hills Ecological Institute um, and so, um, you know, they have the necessary, you know, permits to do this kind of work. And so the, what would be the ultimate thing to do would be to just, you know, add me basically as a sub permittee to, you know, work under them off of their permit. But like you said, it's a process. So, you know, going out there, um, so when you have to basically, you know, band the chicks, you have to, you know, put your ladders up, work your way up. And that's a Speaking of banding chicks, it's a weird, you know, process to even get these chicks out of this county. I'm, I'm going to try to paint a clear picture here, but basically, you're 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 using basically like a like a, a noose, basically, and you're you're blind fishing. So you, you put this, you know, noose with this tubing in it and the mm-hmm. fishing line, and you you're basically blind fishing. You insert it in the cavity, and 
you're 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 fishing for these nestlings, you know, to to you know pull them up and over the cavity hole and, and get them secure, and then you got to work your way down and then put the bands on them, work your way back up and and plop them back in their cavity. So to do that, that was actually one of the you know requirements for this permit was that I had to. Um, successfully, you know, build ladders and successfully, you know, get all the chicks out of their cavity, depending on how many they were. I had to, you know, get all of them out of, out of their cavity, successfully build and take down these ladders of about, about 10, 10 trees. I had to, and I had to do it, you know, by myself, you know, I, I still have, you know, someone out there with me, but I had to, you know, do it by myself and, you know, just to, that was just a requirement in order for me to be placed, you know, under this permit. Just so, to pass the test. Yeah. Just to pass the um, test. Talk about, exactly. talk, before you go any farther, talk about how you knew that there were that many um, nestlings, fledglings in the nest to begin with, uh, scoping. Yeah, for sure. So going back to the, so the nest check. So we have these like nest cycles that we, you know, do, you know, every, every week. So um, depending on how many clusters you have, and there's a ton of, clusters out on the Sandhills game land. So since I was new, they gave me about 33. Meanwhile, everybody had about 100. Right. <laughs> like, it's so, it was like, you know, okay, but they, they didn't want to overwhelm sounds like a lot. first. 33 it, it still does. sounds like a lot. It, 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 it does. And for what you have to do, like, af- after I learned, you know, everything that you had to do, I was sitting here thinking, gosh. And they're out there with, like, 100 plus, like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's that's, that's insane. Um, so yeah, so, so you do these like nest cycle checks where first you're sort of, you know, identifying and you're looking for the nest tree. So most likely they will use the nest trees from last year, but sometimes, you know, RCWs, they love to keep you on your toes. So maybe they might've excavated a new cavity, you know, maybe they might've chosen a different tree within their cluster, you know, who knows? So these nest cycle checks are sort of that way to determine where they're going to nest. So once you, you know, find the nest, so Back then, um, you know, the, the, the red cockaded woodpecker biologist didn't have this tool, but it's a very useful tool. Um, we call it the, the, the peeper. That's what they call it. And it's like this, this camera that's attached to this pole. It's on the end of a pole. And you basically, like, work the pole. So you, like, push the pole and work it all the way up the tree. And once you insert the camera in the cavity, there's a light that comes on because it, you know, it, it's like a motion, you know, sensor mm-hmm. light because it senses the darkness. This light comes on and then um, there's a monitor at the bottom that you can look into. So back then, when this tool wasn't around, everyone had to climb all of these trees just to check these trees to see if they were nests. Right. So when I was told that, I was like, oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, wow. Like, those are like the real MVP. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this this tool is, is very handy for that. But so once you've identified, you know, that there's eggs in the tree, that's when you know that that's the nest tree. So this monitor allows you to really look and see how many, you know, eggs there are in the tree. But you keep going back to the tree and keep checking the tree and keep checking the nest. When the, when the nestlings hatch, there's like an age guide that, you know, we use to sort of age the nestlings. So you want to ban them around age seven. Um, you don't want to go past age 10. Age 7 is the, you know, exact and right age. But if you kind of go a little bit past that, it might be harder to, you know, get the nestlings out of the cavity. And it, you know, might be a little bit, you know, difficult to, to maneuver them. So, um, so, but yeah, you just, and you want to just keep going back and checking. And that's how you'll know 
how many nestlings you have, you know, to, to ban. You did a and great then, job. Once, you did a great job telling all, all that. That's exactly, exactly how right. it happens. Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> yeah, I got a, I got a couple of questions because I haven't. Yeah. I guess I'm the one of one out of three here who we're not. we're we're red cockaded alum and 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 sam's being inducted right now uh, yeah and i i, I kind of know the gist but i've never been on the ladder and i've never gotten to touch one uh yeah so first of all there's a few things one let's talk about the rcw in general kind of from from a layman's point of view like what mm-hmm. what is this bird you know i think everybody when they see a woodpecker you think of a pileated woodpecker kind of a bigger bird right. Um, so what's the difference in just its physical appearance from a pileated woodpecker to a RCW? Yeah, definitely. So RCWs will be a little bit, they'll be a little bit smaller than a pileated. So not as big as a pileated, but they're a little bit smaller. Um, a lot of people confuse them. They will get confused with, you know, downy and hairy woodpeckers because their, their coloration is quite similar. I mean, it's, it's, you know, very, very similar, but, um, you know, with, with the with the red cockaded woodpecker um so the males they'll have this red cockade so that's where their name comes from and it's like this like red tuft on the on the tip of their on the tip of their head um and so you know and you know red cockaded woodpeckers you know also have like the you know the white you know spots on their feathers and the and the you know white and grayish chest so and they have their their white teeth so they're very known for their little for their white cheeks on the side of their faces. But again, these woodpeckers do get you know confused, especially with I've I've seen a lot of people you know a lot of people will tell me oh I think I saw RCW and then mm-hmm, it turned mm-hmm. out it was you know like a, <laughs> it was yeah, a we, hairy we get we get so landowners like, with with those uh, comments pretty often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So, so, so I kind of have to like let them down easy, and I'm like, oh, that's not still, it's still cool. Still cool. It's yeah. Still cool. Yep. It's still cool. <laughs> okay. So here's another. But here's yes. another question. Um, there's two. I have, I have two. One. Uh, we're talking about their physical appearance. You're talking yes. about a featherless, naked mole rat of a seven day old, <laughs> seven day old RCW. <laughs> Uh, tiny. First time that's ever been used yeah. on the show. When you're banding, when you're banding an RCW, um, how careful do you have to be, and what tools do you use to to band that RCW? Yes. Super careful. I absolutely love your question because so I I am subpermitted under a master bander. So for my master's research, the initial project that I was going to do involved banding northern cardinals. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Northern Cardinals are every bird bander's dream, of course. Yeah, you know, they, with they, their, with their, they bite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, but, so I, um, you know, I got my bird banding training up at Powder Mill Nature Reserve, which is in Rector, Pennsylvania. Wonderful facility, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. Um, if anybody, I will throw this bit out. If anyone is, you know, interested ever in learning how to bird band, I highly recommend Powder Mill Nature Reserve. Um, but anyway, so I have learned basically to band adults. This was my first time banding chicks. Yeah. Ever, sure. ever, ever. So like you just asked, you have to be extremely, extremely, extremely careful. So um I'm I'm used to using, you know, banding pliers. So you know, you know, the banding pliers that you use mm-hmm. to, to safely, you know, secure the band on the on the bird's leg. With RCW chicks with the color bands. 
so the color bands are what we use, you know, in order to, to recite these, these chicks for the data. That's the data that we collect after they pledge. And the color bands are like their unique band combo, you know, of their, of their family, their little unique family combo that we use in order to identify, you know, if the fledglings, you know, fledge successfully. Um, so with the color bands, we use, you know, these what we call these spoons. And you have to, like, you know, get the color band on the spoon, and then you have to flip it over the, the, the bird's leg. So, as you can imagine, <laughs> with nestlings, they're moving around all over the place. <laughs> right. Like, you know, won't stand still, you know, and everything. So, you really have to be careful when you're banding nestlings. So, that was really something new I had to, you know, learn. And it took a while. Because I will say, the first time I, I, I banded them, you know, it was very nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. You know, especially... Especially with, you know, getting trained and, you know, having someone look over your shoulder, that's twice as nerve wracking because you're sitting yeah, there like, oh sure. gosh, they're, 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 they're critiquing what I'm doing. And then again, like you're saying, it's a federally endangered species. So I'm sitting over here like working this band on this bird's leg, like, oh my gosh, I'm holding a federally endangered species. Like, oh my gosh, they're critiquing yep. me, you know, and what I'm doing, how I'm putting the band on. But so it does take a while, but eventually you get the hang of it. Um, but yes. So going back to your question, you have to be extremely, extremely careful. So that was something new I had to learn was, you know, how to handle these nestlings, you know, safely and being used to, you know, adults that are, you know, they kind of just, they kind of work with you and you're kind of a little bit less fearful when you're banning adults compared to nestlings. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And then I guess kind of leading towards, and this is something that you had mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, was you're start just starting to get data regarding the hatch rate of RCWs. And Mm -hmm. I I don't know if that's something that you can share or in the middle of research, you don't have enough data to, to share that yet. But if it is something you, you can share, you know, what is the, what is the percentage of, of successful hatches or, um, you know, survival rate of hatchlings? Yeah, of course, of course. So I don't have exact percents yet, but I can sort of talk about like the the trends that we're seeing so far. So I'll I'll back it up. Um, going back to um, you know the RCWs and the data set. So um, Jeffrey Walters, he's at Virginia Tech. He's a professor there. He is one of the pioneers of this RCW research, and he manages this data set for you know all of these sites. So the Sandhills. Um, you know, which includes areas like, you know, Fort Bragg. Um, and then he manages um, Eglin and also he manages uh, Camp Lejeune. So he, mes- so he manages all of these huge data sites and this, all of these, these, this, these data sets put together make up a 40-year data set. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there is a ton of data here to work with. And, you know, another whole reason why, you know, large data sets are are really, you know, really important, you know, when it comes to research and especially when they're managed well. And I've I've never seen a large data set that has been managed as well as this RCW data set. And and it's, you know, awesome. So, um, but yeah, but so just looking at these trends, you know, we're, we're starting to you know, see sort of a little bit of, of decline in, in nestling success, especially in the sandhills. A, a little bit, not not too, too much. So, again, I don't have exact percentages yet, but I can share, you know, sort of, you know, a little bit of trends. Um, but we're starting to just sort of work off of this pre- preliminary data um, at the very beginning here. I'm sort of still trying to work through and, you know, analyze it and ask the questions that we want to ask. But 
Um, once we get, you know, those trends and have some sense of what's going on, that'll help us sort of determine, okay, what do we, you know, need to test for, you know, or, you know, what, what questions do we need to ask? Because it might be that, you know, I might not need to go back out to the Sandhills. Maybe I need to go to Camp Lejeune or maybe I need to go to Eglin Air Force Base. Like, you know, so it's just going to determine what, you know, sort of what we're seeing in these trends and sort of where I need to go <laughs> for my next field season. So yeah. it's, it's a process nonetheless. And like I said, working with this large data set, it's, it can be intimidating. It really can at times, but, you know, you just sort of have to take the time with it there. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. I, so whenever I was working for WRC, we did this thing. And I'm, if you haven't been a part of it yet, I imagine you're going to be. Um, yeah every March and my birthday's in March. So I always kind of half dreaded it, half look forward to it. I don't know which, I don't, I don't know which, but, um, every year we would go do a inventory on the, on the trees, the, the nest trees. So we would yeah. go and repaint every single tree, freshen up the paint, look for new starts. So where a woodpecker had started a new excavation site, um, mm-hmm. and we would walk the entire Sand Hills game land as a staff of, hundreds of dudes and ladies just everybody basically getting in a line 50 feet apart and combing the woods with binoculars looking for woodpecker holes so we did that for three days to comb the entire sand hills game land and uh that would lead to the further research that what you're what you've been doing actually Mm -hmm. going to the trees um so Mm -hmm. it was it was a fun time to get together with everybody um also like one of the most boring walks ever at time, at times, you know, just you know, you walk through Pine Savannah for three right. days. Like on the third day, you've seen what there is to see. It feels like yes. because you're not walking through the yes. cool parts. So you know, a lot of times there's there's the cool parts of the habitat where it's you know, pitcher plants and that kind of thing. But that's not where the woodpecker yes. trees are. Um, so and you're having to look up in the air, so you're not looking at the ground where there might be a, a cool rattlesnake or something fun to see, or, right, you know, right. or you know, whatever. But I do have a question um, on on especially you know the mortality rates. Do you have any findings related to the mysterious bird pandemic um, as of late? The the mysterious thing taking out you know all birds, not not necessarily rcws but have you seen any correlation with rcws or um any new findings with that are you uh are you on the teams that are look that is uh researching that that's a good question so i'm not on the teams that are researching that but i know exactly what you're talking about and that pandemic was it was something (laughs) it was you know something for sure um so i'm not on that team in particular but i will say um um, you might have heard of it, um, AKD, avian keratin disease. Mm-hmm. That is something that's um, sort of um, occurring. So some of the biologists have been seeing it in RCWs in particular um, on Fort Bragg. There haven't been many on the San Jose land, but there have been some um, cited on Fort Bragg. So this disease in particular, so this is sort I mean, basically it's, when, you know, it, it, it causes the, the beak of the bird to grow extremely long. And if you look up images online, it just, it just looks rather painful because you're sitting mm-hmm. there like, how does this bird even function? So it doesn't just affect RCWs, but it affects, you know, numerous bird species. Um, I actually re- wrote an article for the Nature Conservancy where I talked to the, um, the scientists and the researchers responsible for, you know, discovering this disease. So that's on 
their blog, and it was really exciting to talk to them. But um, you mentioning that pandemic, it, it just made me it just made me think about you know avian keratin disease as a disease that's actually being seen you know in RCWs, and it's and it's quite fairly you know new um, being you know seen in RCWs. Again, it's been seen in multiple other species like chickadees, um, American crows. Um, but so seeing it in RCWs, it's kind of bought up some new like protocols for the biologists to, you know, use as far as, you know, if you encounter of RCW with AKDs, you know, just sort of precautions to take, you know, when you're handling them and if you're handling other birds so for the disease not to spread. You know, yeah, well, that's but, alarming for a, you know, a colony a, nester. A colony yeah. nester. For sure, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if, if the seriously, right? I mean, pandemic and disease in a bird species that's so social is uh, yeah. is not good. That brings up so yeah. this is something, and I don't even know if you're allowed to say, but what is the protocol? Should you encounter a a RCW that is 100% for sure carrying the disease? What what's the protocol there? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So with so with biologists. So if you, you know, if you're handling like an adult per se, like if you, you know, might have to catch an adult to like, you know, fix it, fix his bands on the legs, you know, recapture it, et cetera. Um, or just to, you know, maybe take samples of this mm-hmm. disease. Um, you just, I mean, just basically, you just want to be, you know, extremely, um, extremely careful. Um, if you're, if you're putting, so like if you're transporting the bird in any way, you know, we can use bird bags to do that. Um, so if, you know, put this bird in, in the bird bag and then you release it. Um, you want to just make sure that, you know, to wash that bag, you know, in, in, in Clorox and things like that, just to make sure nothing, you know, spreads. But overall, there is a database um, that you can enter this data in that goes, uh, you know, back to, you know, the, the researchers in the lab who, you know, have been um, researching this up in Alaska. So not just, um, you know, biologists, but everyday individuals, if you you know, see see a bird with this disease, there is a place that you can go, you know, to, to report it, and it, it helps with research efforts. Yeah, that's a great, um, th- great thing to point out to our listeners. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you, yeah. If, you're, if you do this in your backyard for fun and you like looking at birds, you can you can help scientists document these things. Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. So you're, so there is um, a uh, form that you fill out. It's on the Alaska Science Center um, on USGS. And it's called Beak Deformity and, and Banded Bird Observation Report. And that's where you can go on there and you can basically report, um, you know, the bird that you saw, where you saw it, et cetera. Um, for bird banders, there's places on there where you can put the band combination. Um, so it, it, all of this is, is you know, it, it, like you said, it helps with research efforts and helps with scientists learning more about this disease. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I, I've got a fun question. We were just talking. Yeah, that was more. That was super morbid. We're sorry. Yeah, this is like the, I know. Um, we'll get. Let's get on the fun stuff. When we uh, a few episodes ago, or maybe even last episode, we talked about yes. uh, having cameras out. You know, for work or for fun or whatever. Trail cams. Yeah. Uh, we're obsessed with uh, wild and crazy. Yeah, around here. feeder cams, whatever. <laughs> Uh, yes. I'm sure you have a lot of feeder cams out or have had in the past, and you've probably got some wildlife cameras out. Um, and we've been discussing just like if we ended up making a calendar or like a web page with the craziest photos that we've ever found. And I thought, I thought, I bet you, I bet you've got a, pr- a couple of pretty good ones. So, is there any 
photos that you've got on feeder cams or trail cams that you were like, oh, I, I definitely want to talk about this or share this with us? Gosh. So I will say that I, I actually don't trail cams. I don't have any I don't have any out, but I do have a colleague here at NC State who his all of his projects on, are based on trail cams. So Roland Case, he's um he does a ton of bird I mean or not just bird work, but mammals basically. Mm-hmm. Um so he does a ton of that work with, you know, um, you know, trail cams and I'm sure he has some funny pictures. <laughs> but I yeah, but I actually I don't I I don't work with with trail or feeder cams. Um I there was a discussion that came up actually with my research that I actually wanted to maybe implement one just you know for observation. Um and there was I forgot who was telling me about it but there's like some cameras that you can actually put like in the you know cavity trees so like in like the nest boxes and stuff and but um it, it sounded like it was a huge process to, to go through to get these cameras, you know, in the in the cavity tree, which I could totally imagine. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, so I'm just I, I I I don't know if we'll revisit that idea. <laughs> but it seems like when I inquired about it, it was a it was a huge process to <laughs> to, to get one in there. <laughs> True. One other thing, when we were researching. Um, when we were researching you and, and some of your work, uh, we found yeah. some articles regarding light pollution, which I think is something that we're very interested in. I think it all ties in in terms of the work that we do. Uh, I think we're very interested in urbanization, uh, urban yes. sprawl, and yes. the effects of, of that on – and just human human wildlife interface, really. Right. So uh, let's talk – let's just have a little discussion about light pollution and, and – some of your findings regarding light pollution and the work that you've done. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead, go into that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So yeah, when I, when I first came to NC state, um, my initial project, like I said, it was going to be, it was, it involved um, banding Northern Cardinals and looking at the effects of noise and light pollution, you know, on, on their survivorship. So we chose Northern Cardinals because, you know, they're very abundant. Everyone loves Cardinals. They're year round birds. So it was, you know, sort of a, nice focal species to, you know, focus on and, and have, you know, as my focal species. But with um, the the thing that interrupted this was the fact that, so I'm also a part of a citizen science lab. So citizen science is, you know, another branch of science where, you know, participants and like everyday individuals can basically help, you know, help scientists, you know, with their with their research and, and can get involved and, and contribute more to, you know, a scientist's everyday research. It gives the participant more, you know, say so, especially when it comes to, you know, certain things like, you know, environmental justice and, and, and community impacts, you know, as it, you know, comes to science and research. But so with my project, I had the citizen science component in there where I would actually be, you know, misnetting. So that's where, that's how I would, you know, gather these cardinals. I would be misnetting in um, individuals' backyards. So with that, I would also have their participation in, you know, helping me, you know, while I'm out there asking questions, you know, maybe getting to hold a bird or two, you know, you never know, Some somewhere along those lines. But with the pandemic, the pandemic came up and everything. So we just sort of thought that with this being a big part of that project, that it just, you know, we couldn't see it happening. We, we had to go through these, you know, protocols and steps through my university to, sort of get it approved for me to do it but this was right when COVID was starting and Mm -hmm. things were you know really really scary at the time so we were just kind of like 
maybe we should pursue <laughs> another, you know, option. So still focusing on urban noise and light pollution, I ended up using um, a huge data set, a 20-year data set from um, Neighborhood Netwatch, with it, which is a citizen science project um, that's out of the uh, Smithsonian um, Zoo in Washington, D.C. So with that data set, um, Neighborhood Nest Watch specifically um, down there in D.C., they look at seven different um, bird focal species, and um, they specifically look at urbanization, so like you guys are talking about urbanization, urban sprawl, but um, in regards to impervious surface. So these are, you know, your sidewalks, your roads, et cetera, and basically how this is impacting, you know, avian survival. So mm -hmm. that was the paper that I was working from and, you know, using sort of their outline, you know, to work with my paper, looking at instead urban noise and light instead of impervious surface. I had impervious surface in there, but it was mostly focused on, you know, urban noise and light. So um, with that project, I mean, we basically found that, you know, um, you know, species and their their interactions were sort of species, you know, species specific. Mm, so some species, sense. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So some species, you know, would benefit from, you know, urban noise or light pollution, right. where, whereas some it might, you know, impact them, you know, a huge deal. So, for example, American robins, that was one of the seven focal species. And American robins, <laughs> I don't know if you I don't, I don't know if you guys have, have, have heard them at, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning, but they sing fairly early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they sing fairly early in the morning. And there have been, you know, a ton of studies which have seen that, you know, actually this is a benefit for robins, you know, to, to sing in the early morning, whether it be, you know, for mating rituals or, you know, or, or how, or, you know, what, what may have you, but, um, and also just with urbanization in general in American robins, it can be beneficial for them in many ways. So where I live here in Raleigh, I see a ton of American robins, you know, on the landscape, you know, at my apartment complex. And, um, you know, these, it can, it can come from, so one of my, one of my committee members, actually, she brought up a good point and she asked me the question, you know, well, you, you have to, you know, remember too that um, at these, you know, complexes, they, for example, they keep the grass cut a lot, and mm -hmm. robins can benefit from that when it comes to, you know, finding food and finding worms. Um, when it rains, impervious surface comes it comes into account there. So our sidewalks and our roads come into account there because there's worms on the impervious surface, and robins love worms. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, a, that's, you know, that's, a, great that's a great point, you know, about yeah. science. It's like a general yeah. point. There's no, there's never just a nice, clean answer. Like, like impervious never. surface is bad. Well, for, for, yeah, for some. I think overall yes. the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. But it's like you say, yes and no, uh -huh. you know. Yeah. But, yes. yeah, I, I that, guess you got to put that yeah. together. You know, there are you species do. that can, that can make apples or make, what am I trying to say here? Make apples. Lemonade. There lemonade it is. Yeah. The, yeah. Lemonade out. Yeah. Make apple pie yeah. out of apples. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you, you guys knew what I meant. Yeah, I, fruit's not my. But no, but that's no, but that's that's a good, that's a great point that you guys bring up because in science, I feel like we tend to, and I and I and I know I I tend to, I still find myself doing it sometimes. But it's sort of like in science, we tend to want to you know talk about the negatives and you know if you know and and but not really focus on you know the positives. So. 
with this, you know, research question, you know, like you said, there's some birds that don't benefit from urban noise and light, but there's some that do. And you have to, you know, sort of talk about that. So noise and light, you know, might not be, you know, this, this bad culprit that we, you know, ha- you know, have it out to be, you know, at times. It actually may be beneficial for some species, and we kind of have to, you know, remember that just in science in, in general. Because I feel like we, as scientists, we tend to think that, you know, the negative is going to bring, like, this bigger, you know, impact and bigger interest with our audience. Like, you know, oh, like, they found something, you know, negative in their research because of this, you know, or something like that. But talking about the positives. <laughs> all all, all good biologists are pessimists. All, all, all the good <laughs> biologists are pessimists. Uh, I, 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 I firmly believe that. It's like, yeah, it's bad. And trust me, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> um, like they're, they're going to be the ones that are advocating. Um, so yes. you, I, I've just found that throughout my career that the biologists that I look up to uh, generally, <laughs> generally speaking, are negative. <laughs> Um, I completely I got, a, I got a question regarding robins. Um, yeah. You were saying, you know, the singing early in the morning, uh, you know, four in the morning. And the benefit of that being, I'm assuming that they're singing prior to, in the city landscape, singing prior to mm-hmm. um, like traffic noise, the yes. hustle and bustle of the city. Is that 100%? you know, this is one of those shifting baseline things where all that's all I've, you know, I guess I've ever known is the hustle and bustle of city. Um, is that an adapted, is that an adapted strategy? Is that, you know, would they used to prior to the conditions today sing, you know, at, at sunrise or is that, is that, is that the, is that what it is? Yeah. No, good question. So it is an adaptive strategy. So some species of birds, over time, they have found ways to adapt when it comes to noise pollution. So you hit it right on the money, 100%. So American robins, you know, they sing early in the morning. Uh, uh, you know, other species of birds, they may sing earlier in the morning to meet that that traffic noise. You are 100% correct. Um, because with this noise, you know, it, it, it's interfering with these birds, you know, their, their communication. So, you know, you, I mean, you could just imagine this, this high level traffic noise and you're sitting here trying to maybe communicate with your neighbor or try to communicate with your mate. Like, but you, you know, your, your communication is thrown off by this high level anthropogenic noise. And so you are exactly right. A hundred percent. And when I say so, like, when I say like city noise or the hustle and bustle of the day, I mean, yeah, yeah. obviously in, in Raleigh, that's going to be, it's going <laughs> to be so much noise. But I mean, even if you're live in Salisbury or out in the country, you know, think about the noise from your house, from the road nearby. You can still hear it. You think about the air traffic noise. You think about just all of the sounds that you hear that are not natural. That's still a cacophony, a cacophony of noise that could disrupt, you know, natural sounds or them communicating. Well, it's like, you know, how we're talking about negativity for every, like Mm -hmm. one species that found a way to, get Adapt. around get sure. around it mm-hmm. there's a gazillion that didn't or can't i mean talking about light pollution and noise pollution i mean not just birds i mean sea turtles for example you got to turn your lights out on the beach during nesting season mm-hmm. because it oh, screws yeah. them up mm-hmm. and yeah. uh they, they do not have a way to evolve fast enough to get around it and they won't mm-hmm. um yeah. and same yeah. with birds for every mockingbird and robin that figured out you know, and now their their species can handle city life 
there's plenty that can't. I mean, Peregrine Falcons is a great mm-hmm. example of one that adapted to the city. Well, think about, I right. mean, yeah, and think about sea turtles and the lifespan of a sea turtle, you know, and the the turnover. Right, in it's terms not of fast. Generational turnover and the ability fast. to adapt, whereas with a robin, you know, that's there's so much generational turnover that's adapting quickly to its surroundings that you know they can they can evolve, um, which is all very interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah it's fun. It's it fun is. to talk. It's it definitely is. fun to talk about, and it's fun to talk about the positives and the, the species that handle handle town or urban sprawl well. You know, coy- right. coyote is right. a great coyote. Charismatic like kind of. I would call it a megaphone at this point. You know, deer do oh, well. Yeah. Uh, deer, yeah. yeah, yeah, deer. I'd say that the deer populations on the landscape are higher than they've ever been mm-hmm. because of people, yeah, agriculture. Yeah. Maybe not urban sprawl, but definitely agriculture affects deer populations. Yeah. I think of doves yeah. and roads. What you're talking about um, with roads and impervious surface. Well, I, th- I just immediately went to doves and grit on the side of roads. And, and doves love and doves love to you know, develop yeah. some type of uh-huh. development. Yeah, so it's so it's just so interesting for sure. And we, but and we love is. doves. Yeah, but I like. Yeah, we do love doves. <laughs> but then at the end of the day, you know, having and protecting natural areas, uh, large natural areas, for those. I mean, we haven't even talked about it, and this could be a, maybe you'll have to come back on. and We'll do another one, but. Yeah, wait till you've got another field season yeah. under your belt, where, and and then you come back and we talk all about. But one thing we haven't talked about is migrants. We haven't talked about yeah, we, migrating birds whole, either, like, and that migrate. That's a yes. whole different can of worms. Yeah, the light the light effects of migratory birds. Yeah, <laughs> not and good. You, and and this and this is a great point, and I, and I want to point out that um, Raleigh was the first major city in the state to commit to the Life Out initiative. To provide a safe journey for migrating birds who, you know, are migrating south. So there's these different, like, you know, life out initiatives that you know, cities are, are taking, you know, into account. You know, when birds migrate, that light pollution is a huge factor. So to see that Raleigh like stepped up and did that, that was that was pretty awesome. Yeah, I <laughs> so totally I agree. I totally agree. I think <laughs> I think it should be. If I was, we we talk about this all the time. If if we were rulers of the world, I like to I like dude, to have the hypothetical of if I was the head of DOT. That's like my. Uh, <laughs> tell, she'll like your she'll like your first move. Them. She'll I like your tell her your first move if my, you're head of DOT. I, I like was, it. Yeah, if I was head of DOT, I would make it mandatory to have a list of the water, like a nice sign listing the stream or river that you're crossing across the country. And that would connect oh. people more. And then maybe even have a map of the, of the stream itself in relation to other waterways. Cause I mean, Oh, I like it. Yeah. I love the, it. Another one would be, and this is one that you just said, but I, I firmly believe in is putting those shades in every parking lot across America that cast the light mm-hmm. downwards instead of just mm-hmm. open light throwing light upwards in the city that's all well and good there you go. i'd take it a whole other notch i'd step it up a notch there is a time period where lights are out i mean the street lights and lamps we do not need that much light carrie you everybody's got a flashlight on dude, their phone you dude gotta, you're not gonna get re- with that, dude it is you're not gonna get reelected with that oh i, I it would happen i don't this is worse if this is hypothetical I don't need elections. This is, I'm in charge. Okay. Period. <laughs> and lights are out, dude. If you need a light, carry, use your, use your flashlight and just navigate, navigate like they used to. Yeah, it's not going to happen. There you go. But I know there like in safety. The, yeah. Some, some jackhole is going to be like, well, I'm walking to my car in the parking lot and it's dark and I'm in. Yeah. Uh, that's valid. Carry a taser. 
No. <laughs> I, I don't know. You've got a flashlight. You'll be fine. I don't know. I, it is valid. Sure. I I get the security of having a security light. Yeah, but you're gonna have to think. You're gonna have to think about it. My platform is still. We'll, we're gonna get together after <laughs> election, the podcast. Your election campaign is crumbling. Before <laughs> my, the planks in my platform have cracks. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Like I said, negative. Got to be yeah. a little negative. Uh, Lauren, it's been uh, it's been awesome having yeah, you it's been having you. Having you guys are a delight. You guys are a delight. This is this was probably one of the best podcasts I have ever done. Oh, that's <laughs> awfully nice of you to say. Uh, you we guys were, are wonderful, and I and I and, and and I hope that you know we have you know y'all have a good conversation to put together because sometimes when people ask me questions, I go off on tangents. And then I have to come back and be like, oh, crap. Well, did I answer his question? No, you, you, you did. You, you did, did wonderful. Right. Tell people. So I was complimenting you without you knowing it earlier. Um, you have done an excellent job as a uh, young, up-and-coming biologist, professional in this field of promoting yourself and and helping others become aware of topics. And you've got a great presence online. And I you don't have to that. share that on here if you don't want to. Um, this is a you know international, worldwide show. But if yeah. you want people to be able to find you and and see what you're up to, if you want to yeah. give out your your handle and you know how people can get a hold of you, feel free to do that. But don't feel obligated to. Of course, no, I'd be more than happy to. So yeah, if, if anyone you know has any questions or you know anything or just you know, want to talk or want to tell me something cool, um, you can, you know, follow me on Instagram and Twitter. So my handle is at LD and then my last name is Far, P-H-A-R-R. So LD Far on both Instagram and Twitter. Um, my email is going to be LFAR at ncsu.edu. And my website is www.lfar.com. So, so give me Give me a follow. See what I'm up to. I would I would love to, you know, talk to anyone who has any questions or anything fun to tell. So I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I imagine I imagine you're gonna get some feedback from this show. You heard hopefully that. hopefully it's all good. <laughs> no stalkers. Look, I, uh, yeah, no no stalkers, we hope. <laughs> if so, we'll keep the damn lights on in the parking lines. Oh, <laughs> Man, I, I appreciate it. it. And yes, that is correct. She said her website. I was trying to think of any buddies of mine that I'm like, who is that? Well, now like? you know someone with yeah, a website. I know. I know it. I was like, dang, ah. that's pretty cool. He said, I don't know anyone that has their own website. And I was like, well. No. I, was like, I was like, should I make my own? Should I make my own website? Are we, are we missing out by not having a website? <laughs> no, but it, it, you, you, do do, you do a great job. You've done a great job of, of, of promoting um, wildlife conservation and, and your your yourself and and i hope you keep that up and hopefully this will yes. help um this podcast will help further that as well stay on the line yes. we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up stay on the line just a second and um of course. we'll go from there but thanks everyone for listening and uh tune in next week for another exciting episode you're rarely going to hear a pre-recorded commercial on this podcast we don't like the forced way of salesmanship and we're not salesmen we're not even podcasters we're we're wildlife guys and conservationists, and that's what we do for a living. And this podcast is just one of those things that just came along with it, kind of uh, on its own. But with that said, we don't want to forget about our gracious sponsors who are conservationists. They support local conservation here in the region, and they're conservationists themselves. Um, Backcountry and beyond, they're, they're the premier sponsor of this podcast. They've been with us since the beginning, 
and uh, we would like for you guys to go check them out and support them by supporting them you're supporting us and also you're just going to be supporting yourself because they've got really really cool stuff that you're not going to find just anywhere um, everything from the full Traeger line to sauces and spices to a paddleboard to get out on the lake to a uh, uh, e-bike if you're if you're looking for a new bike they've got the e-bikes the quiet cat brand e-bikes um, all kinds of apparel just neat stuff uh, yeti the full yeti lineup anything you might need for getting outside they really are backcountry and beyond the biolite stove which you hear me talk about all the time just really cool intuitive gear and those guys are just a great group to, to go shop from so go check them out backcountry and beyond either online or in the store um, with that said, you should not forget about uh, Lost Highway Gundog Kennels. You hear Grayson Guyer on the podcast every now and then. We've had him on several times. Um, you know what he's about. He's about training the trainer. He's about producing a quality gun dog and a quality partnership between you and your dog. Um, check him out. He's got a ton of resources at Lost Highway Gundog Kennels, and uh, he'd love to help you out. He's a, just a great guy and a great trainer. Um, also check out Traveler Trading Company. Happens to be friends with Grayson Geyer, by the way. Um, they've been a sponsor of ours now for a while. And Traveler Trading Company, they're a leather goods service. They 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 make all kinds of leather goods. And, and the premier belt of the podcast, if we have such a thing, the uh, Big Iron Belt that we named here on the show. Can't say enough for an outdoorsman. Um, you're needing a belt. The Big Iron Belt is a great way to go. If you're a concealed carry guy or gal, um, the Big Iron Belt is one of those. It's aptly named. It can tote your Big Iron just fine. So check out Traveler Trading Co. Also, Rock Outdoors, Highway 8 in Lexington. Boat Megastore is one way to put it. And I'm talking about nice stuff. They've got everything fishing you can think of. They're, they're really, uh, you've heard a podcast or two where we were talking with uh, some professional bass anglers. Um, if you're a bass guy or gal, this is the store for you. They've got everything. The hottest new lures. They know what they're getting special orders in from local local manufacturers. They're uh, always on the cutting edge of, of the bass world. So go check them out if you're a bass angler, if you're a boat enthusiast, if you're an outdoors person. They've got a ton of camping gear, kayak stuff. Kayak right now, kayaking is super intense, and everybody's into it. They're actually really hard to find right now. Rock Outdoors is one of those places you can go. You can check them out, see which ones you like, get some good recommendations. Shane from the YouTube channel Monkeying Around, he actually works there um, as his day job. You can check him out, talk to him. He's going to give you all the intel you need on kayak camping and that kind of thing. So Highway 8, Rock Outdoors, Lexington. Um, lastly, let's not forget about Wolf and Iron. And we don't mention them enough, but I, they're on my mind every day. They're actually on my beard every day for for too much information i guess um wolf and iron they're bringing quality natural beard products and and manly grooming products they've got all kinds of stuff on their website wolf and iron um they've got books on guide a guy's guide to pocket knives they've got really cool stationery if you still into the old school way of of sending cards they've got really cool cards with you know iconic conservation figures like teddy roosevelt they named some of their beard products after you know john muir they've got a black beard you know beard balm it's, it's just a really cool way to groom yourself and also 
support something local that's also supporting conservation. So check out Wolf and Iron. Um, they're supporters of us, and we support them. So check them out. Check out all our great sponsors. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We uh, we thank you as a listener for for being a part of it. We've been been able to keep this show going now for quite some time with very little interruption. And uh, we're very grateful to have you listening, and we hope that you'll continue to do so. If you like the content and you'd like it to keep coming, you should still know that this podcast is just one of the tools that we use here at Three Rivers Land Trust to further our conservation mission. Our number one priority and purpose has always been to conserve land and natural resources for future generations and to be a voice for wildlife to ensure that they have habitats forever here in North Carolina. The podcast is just a byproduct to further that mission. To be a part of the team in the fight for the conservation mission, you should visit our website at www.threeriverslandtrust.org.